cerebral palsy when I was 18 months old. And with cerebral palsy, I have an atypical gait. And I started out up on my toes with my knees facing each other and my back a little bit hunched. But from the time I was four until the time I was 24, I went through a series of operations. And the most significant one, I was 13. And what they did was they uh, went into my femur bones and they pried the muscles apart to get to them. And they sawed them in half and they rotated them 30 degrees and they nailed them back together again. And they put an epidural in, of course, so I wasn't supposed to feel this. And I must have moved while I was waking up from anesthesia and it fell out. And the nurses saw the blood behind my back but what they didn't realize was I hadn't just started my period, which is what they thought they were going to wait till I woke up more. What had happened is I had lost the epidural. I had lost pain medication. Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside the healthcare system. In this podcast, we invite you, the listener, to hear the stories of clinicians and patients, caregivers, and loved ones as they navigate through our complex healthcare system and provide tips and insights from their journey. I am Dr. Nicole Deffenbaugh. I'm a clinical communications specialist and health communications scholar. And I am delighted to be joined today um, with Dr. Julie Ann Scott. She's an Associate Professor of Communication Studies and Performance, Storytelling, and Narrative Research. And she has a new book out um, called Embodied Performance as Applied Research. She's at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Uh, And today she's going to be talking about living with perpetual condition and mothering a child with a perpetual condition as well. So welcome to the podcast, Julianne. Thank you so much. So you've learned a lot um, as both a patient and as a researcher, and I really want to get um, more into the story of having a perpetual condition and have the listeners hear a little bit um, about, uh, you know, when you were diagnosed and, and what it's been like sort of navigating as, as a patient with a perpetual condition. So can you give us a little background of, of your um, health identity? Oh, sure. When I was born, no one was aware that there was any issues. Uh, My birth had been difficult for my mother. She had asthma. They had to hold me back um, and not because the doctor didn't get there in time. So it was a traumatic situation for her, but I seemed healthy and fine. But I always slumped to one side whenever they tried to sit me up because my left side is weaker. And over time, my mother realized this, this was really atypical and that I was over a year old and showing no signs of walking. So they brought me to a series of some of the best hospitals in the country. I'm very lucky that that was an option for me to be at. And I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy at about 18 months old, uh, which was also about the time I started walking. And, I con- and I'm considered to have moderate cerebral palsy because I am able to walk Uh, And I can even run and could even before medical intervention. But what was going on was because my brain sort of functions, as they explained it to me as a little girl, and I still like this idea, like a fuzzy television set that I'm getting the signals. Hmm. But what's happening is because part of my brain is damaged, um, when it's getting to my leg to walk, the movement is what your leg would do if someone stuck you with a pin. And so all of my movements are very sharp and spastic, so I don't have a fluid gait. It's really tight. And because my legs are so tight and my walking is so tight, my muscles, because they're always 
uh, tightening and, tr and having these little tremors, they get shorter and shorter and tighter and tighter. So that meant going through life and saying, okay, we're going to manually stretch out your heel cords. We're going mm -hmm. to break your foot at one point and reposition it because it's moving in an odd way. Finally, they said, what we're going to do is have it so when your muscles spin your legs, we're going to move them 30 degrees out so when they spin them, they spin them straight mm. instead of facing each other. And so through all these operations, my gait kept getting better and better. But one thing the doctors kept on telling my parents is this is incurable. This is a condition she's going to have for the rest of her life because no matter how much operations we do on her legs and her muscles, the issue is in her brain. Her brain's damaged. And we're not going to go in and do anything to her brain because that's very risky and we don't even know how to fix it even if we could. So this idea was uh, you're going to live with this for your whole life. You're going to have spastic, tight muscles that are going to make movement at times painful and always atypical. And I think that was difficult in some ways for my parents because I think they kept on thinking, well, this operation made it better, so it's going to keep getting better and better and it's going to go away. Oh, wow. uh, but it, but uh, that just wasn't what happened. And that never happens with cerebral palsy. It, it's something people uh, live with throughout their lifetime. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get into a little bit about what it's like sort of on a daily basis and, and thinking of one of the stories that you told I'd like you to share with the listeners when you're out and about. So you live with um, a visible illness. Um, a condition, I'm sorry. You live with a visible condition, and so what it's like for you sort of on a, on a daily basis and, and knowing that you have a couple stories to share, could you share one of those for, for what uh, it's sure. like? Yeah. I'll, I'll do one that was very, very recent. Um, I'm the mother of four little boys uh, ranging from six months old to seven and a half, and recently we were out in Target spending their Christmas money. So we were in Target, and... Uh, the two-year-old and the baby both love being carried, and at one point, they had both. I was holding the baby and in a carrier, and the two-year-old kind of climbed on and was like holding on like a little monkey on my side. And as I was going to, I was looking at T-shirts with my one of my other sons, and a woman came up behind me and said, "Did you hurt your leg? It's you know, you know, it's never going to get better." if you keep carrying those boys around. And it made me in some ways smile because in so many ways over time, all of these operations mean that if you don't have a trained eye, mm. you might not realize it's cerebral palsy, especially if I'm holding children because perhaps that's why my gait is seeming a little atypical. And people will think that I pulled a muscle, that I strained oh. something, <laughs> that I sprained an ankle, that this is a temporary situation. I've had people chase me out of a gym saying you shouldn't be working out if you're in this much pain. It's going to get worse. You're not going to get better. You know, so I've had people say that kind of thing to me. They'll think that it's an injury. And so I just smiled at it and said, oh, I'm not injured. I have cerebral palsy. I always walk like this. And so she, of course, was taken aback because cerebral palsy sounds a little scary to people. And she said to me, oh, oh, I had thought these children were yours. And I said, they are? And she said, oh, are people like you usually fertile? Wow. And so, and so I stopped for a minute, like, 
yes, cerebral palsy does not impact fertility, assuming she'd walk away, and she didn't. And instead she said, well, aren't you worried about leaving them without a mother? And I said, well, cerebral palsy also does not impact life expectancy. I said, but just so you know, approaching strangers and target and then asking them about their fertility and mortality is a bit invasive. Oh, you, you said that to her? Yeah, I said, it's a bit invasive. And she looked at me for a minute and she just walked away. Wow. <laughs> and, and so that was the, uh, the conversation. And I did want to end with that because I, I did want her to know, well, I'm happy to have these conversations sometimes because I am an educator and an advocate and I'm comfortable enough that I don't mind answering some of these questions. I have an entire uh, book chapter I wrote about navigating these questions of my students in the classroom. I'm willing to do that, but she also needed to know that this might not go well for you at another time, or it could right. really upset someone in ways that's not deeply upsetting me. So I wanted to end with that to hopefully help her get a little bit of understanding of uh, the fact that you can't uh, question every atypical body you see. Yeah. I mean, the the fact that you ch chose to engage her in this conversation, you know, speaks volumes to the, the, you know, like you said, the educator that you are. And still, I'm so um, just taken aback by this individual you've never met before, who it was assumption after assumption after assumption after assumption. The only question I have for you is, what is that like? In so, in so many ways, it is both exhausting and a purpose. Hmm. Because I feel fortunate in some ways that living with this disability that I have, that people can see it. So they don't question, once I say I have cerebral palsy, they're like, yeah, you do walk weird. You do have a disability. So I'm not having to navigate the invisible disability where people are really skeptical. Hmm. But at the same time, my body is not so jarring that people see me as so atypical hmm. that they can't approach me and have these conversations because I look almost normal. It's like I have, uh, I've called it in a, in a few articles, almost but not quite passing. Hmm. And so I'm in this situation where it means that I can have these conversations and there's no skepticism of the legitimacy, but also because I'm able to move through the able-bodied world fairly easily, I'm not dealing with compounded stigma or isolation in a way that makes these conversations too exhausting to have. Yeah. So for that reason, I have them. I was at a conference and uh, someone was doing this performance that made me very uncomfortable as a disabled person because they were talking about about privilege and in and, and this whole 45 minute presentation, nobody mentioned disability and there were some problematic metaphors for me. And so I, I called them out on it. And afterwards, some of my uh, disabled colleagues, we went out and had a drink, and they said, I'm so glad you did that, because I feel like if I did it, it would have shut conversation down because of how people read my disability, but because they read you as very close to them, 
they'll actually keep talking mm. in ways they won't keep talking to me. They'll exchange glances about the angry disabled woman and nobody will say a word. Mm. And so it's kind of interesting that I'm able to have those conversations. And um, as long as, and sometimes I really feel like, you know what, I don't feel like engaging every inappropriate person on the elevator. Right. Like sometimes I just don't want to. Um, but usually I, I don't mind. Yeah. So we're for, so for the listeners, we're going to come back to this um, a little bit later. I want to move on though and talk about your son, um, since the the topic is about living with a perpetual condition. So we've got a, a good sense of um, well, I should say at least a little bit of background, perhaps not a good sense, but a little insight. And um, what it's like mothering a child with a perpetual condition. I wondered if you could just briefly give us a little background about that. Sure. My seven-year-old son has a frontal lobe epilepsy with complex partial seizures. And what that means is while he remains conscious and he keeps breathing and usually even keeps his balance, he can have up to 33 to 20-second seizures a day if he is not on medication, which mm -hmm. is exhausting for his body and for his brain. So this started when he was about two. He, I think he had just turned two when it started. We had just maybe started the, the beginning of our summer break. And we started seeing these, what we realize now were seizures, but weren't sure because we didn't really know enough about seizures. But something was definitely happening that he was stopping and breathing heavy and trembling and we kept trying to figure out what was going on and we were wondering if he was aware during them so he said as soon as this is over you can have a popsicle and sure enough as soon as an entity ran over to the freezer so we mm -hmm. knew that he was understanding us and after a series of conversations with his wonderful pediatrician um, followed by a neurologist we found out based on our observations this is uh, this is this is your diagnosis mm -hmm. and so that meant we had to go through a lot of uh, EEGs and MRIs to look at his brain, which looks very healthy and typical because the frontal lobe of the brain is where you process emotion. Mm. So because of that, the seizures just blend in with the emotions he might be having. So because that part of your brain's always moving, the, mm. EEGs, and MRI, the EEGs, which is what's supposed to pick up the activity, can't distinguish it oh. hmm. from whatever emotions that you're having very well. And we're very thankful that the MRI showed there was no tumors or, or atypical structures in his brain. So we live with this idea. He has this, uh, this situation. And like me, it will not end his life early. It's not life-threatening. But it is something that he lives with. And every time he has a growth spurt, we go through another chemistry experiment to figure out where are we going to put meds and where they need to be for him to function. And while at two... It didn't seem like that big of a deal. As he gets older and he's in school, he's in a Spanish immersion school where every other day his lesson uh, switches languages back and forth. So that fatiguing of his brain with seizures can become more disruptive to his life, even though the seizures have stayed constant. They haven't gotten worse. They haven't gotten better. As he moves through life, they're complicating it in different ways. Um. 
So given the, the topic that we're talking about today, can you tell me what it's like as an individual with a perpetual condition, mothering a child with a condition? Um, so thinking if there's a story that, you know, that, um, you know, emerges for you to, to show how you navigate through the system as somebody who has a perpetual condition herself. What's that like? Sure. I think one uh, situation might be to think about uh, how people will respond to the fact that Tony has epilepsy, my son. And when they find out he has epilepsy, they go, oh, I'm so, so sorry. And I'll say, well, you don't have to be that sorry. I mean, he, he's, too, he's doing okay. He's doing well. He's, he's enjoying life. And they're like, and they're like, so uh, what do you do when he has a big seizure in school? And I'll be like, well, a big seizure would be 20 minutes. Uh, 20, no, no, gosh, not 20 minutes. Would be 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Would be a very long seizure. I said, so if he's a little tired afterwards, he may lay down, but he really recovers right away. But because people only know, only know about the... Um, the catatonic seizures, when they hear that, they assume that Tony is on the ground, that he's trembling, that he's unaware, that he's lost all control of his body, because that's what they think seizures are. Just like people think of cerebral palsy with me as someone in a wheelchair Mm -hmm. and unable to move at all, because there is a spectrum of cerebral palsy, just like there's a spectrum of epilepsy, and both Tony and I are probably about in the same place in that spectrum, and that it is disruptive. You can see it in our daily lives, but we are not uh, what people think of when they think of somebody with that particular uh, condition. And so I find myself often perhaps over-identifying with Tony, being worried that people are going to make assumptions that I try to head off quickly, like when we're having a meeting about his epilepsy and what what that's going to be like for him at school, I'm always feeling like they might try to exclude, they might try to pull him out because I was pulled out of the classroom, I wasn't allowed to be there as often I would have liked. I feel like I missed opportunities and I don't want that to happen to Tony. And sometimes my husband, who has never experience any kind of illness. He hasn't really ever spent any time in the hospital. And who has a mother who is a nurse, so he really Mm. believes in the medical system, will be like, there's no reason to be so defensive Mm. with his doctors and with uh, different people assessing his educational needs. And then every once in a while, they'll be like, oh, you're right. They, They were thinking of not allowing him to be in that experience. They were thinking that. But then other times, he's like, see, that was absolutely fine. So I think I end up trying to figure out after the fact whether or not I needed to be as strong of an advocate as I was, Mm -hmm. Um, because I think he does not perhaps need the level of advocating that I did, because we've come a long way. But there are moments where he does need that. And we were in one of these meetings, and there's about eight different stakeholders sitting around the table. And my son is in a Spanish immersion magnet school that's a lottery system. So because you're in this lottery, they can kick you out of that school because there's a neighborhood school you could go to instead. Mm 
Mm. So this particular school is, is very is very easy for a child to not be in. So this is a conversation we're having um, that isn't with the school, but with a group of professionals assessing Tony's disability and what he's going to need as he goes to school. And so we're in this situation, and I'm very, very nervous because I'm worried that Tony is going to not be able to have the Spanish immersion experience because he needs support for having epilepsy. And as we're going into the meeting, uh, my husband, who reads me very well, could tell that I was going into that meeting a bit posturing, that I was ready for a fight. And he said, you know, you really shouldn't feel this way. Everybody coming into this meeting is just wanting what is best for Tony. They're not going to try to take away your spot in a lottery. That's not what they're trying to do here. They're trying to best serve your son. And while we were sitting in the room, I kept being very careful whenever I was asking for anything to make sure it was not misconstrued of me not wanting him in this lottery situation or being open to him not being in this Spanish immersion school. And my husband kept kind of looking at me and sort of giving me a look like you're being a little, you're being a little pushy here. Let's talk, um, I want to shift now into the section of our, our podcast where you offer ad advice and wisdom and, and you have already mentioned a, a few things, especially most recently about this idea of exclusion. Um, thinking back to your medical encounters as well, um, what are some things that you would provide those who work within the medical system um, to continue to do that have been beneficial to you and some things that you would recommend not doing or stopping um, that people have done? Well, I have been very fortunate to have really strong medical professionals in my life. I feel very lucky to have been surrounded by the people I have. Um, one thing I think to realize, and this is for medical professionals who are not experts in a neurological uh, di disorder like I have with cerebral palsy, to be aware that the patient is probably more of an expert on that particular disability than you are if it is not your expertise. Mm -hmm. So I remember at one point I was giving birth to my second son and I give birth very quickly and very efficiently. And I was in a situation where she wanted me to be on my back to deliver. And I was startled by it because the first doctor I had with my first son, I had delivered on my knees and she had joked, I can catch the baby from any angle, don't worry, I'm flexible. And so it was this fine situation, the baby came fast, he was healthy. And so we're in this situation, I'm like, and so she wanted the doctor, the two nurses to pull my legs apart more and because she felt like she couldn't get in there as comfortably as she'd like to. And I was saying, I can't, and I said, you can't do that. Because if you do that, they're going to spasm, and she had them do it anyway, and it was like, it was so painful, I couldn't even push, and then she was mad at me for not pushing when she said push, mm -hmm. and so it was like this exchange we had, um, and that luckily the nurses felt the spasm, so they just didn't do that next time when she told them to, and the baby came fine, but I think part of that was I had been seeing her as I rotated through the practice, and she knew that I was a cyclist, and that I did prenatal yoga and that you know I liked to run and I liked and so in her mind it's like she's very healthy it'll be fine because mm. she had really identified but saying yeah I am really healthy 
And I also have cerebral palsy, so you need to listen to me. So I would say, overall, if you don't know enough about I, about a disability, I've had a lot of uh, I've had a lot of doctors sort of dismiss it, like, well, you're more flexible than a lot of other women your age. So I wouldn't even think about it. It's like, mm, mm. but other women my age aren't having involuntary tremors and spasms. Mm-hmm. So because of that. You need to listen if it's not your expertise. And then awareness of perceptions, biases. So if she had perceived you as being a healthy person who's capable because of these other things and you're saying, no, really, no, this isn't working, no. The, the thing that's so surprising about this story is I heard you say she did it again. And so even after you were shaking, either even after the nurses wouldn't hold your legs anymore, she, is that correct? She insisted on doing it again. And you were, you were telling her, no, I cannot. Yeah, she did. Yeah. And she really couldn't figure it out. And I think in her mind, she was, you're just not pushing because it hurts. And you've got to push even though it hurts. And I said, I, I know how to deliver a baby. I, I understand that. I think the issue is that you're, when you're pulling, the pain in my legs is so strong that I'm losing my breath and I can't push. And so I'm have, trying to have this conversation between, uh, between contractions that I should be pushing out my son. Yeah. And so it was a very, and so because of that, it was a very tense situation. And part of it was, I think, and also I think I was very pushy in those meetings too, because a couple of times they said, well, with cerebral palsy, we could get insurance to cover a cesarean if you would mm-hmm. like a cesarean. And my thought was, well, first of all, there's no reason why I can't deliver because I have cerebral palsy. And they're like, well, that's true. And also epidurals are the most frightening thing to me in the world, and I'm not having one. Right. So so really a cesarean's not happening because I'm too scared to sit still enough for you to put a needle in my back. So unless it's a life-threatening situation, we're just not going down that road. Mm-hmm. And so I think in that way, I might have even overly talked mm-hmm. about my capability of having a baby that, so to the point where some of the doctors were like, oh, well, then she's fine when, yes, I'm fine, but yes, my body is still atypical. And mm. I think that can be really hard uh, for doctors. And I think it's important for patients to remember, too, that amazing gynecologists have as much knowledge of cerebral palsy as an average person that you might run into in the grocery store at times. Mm because that's just not their area. And it might have been a unit in medical school, but that was a long time ago. And so I think that's important to remember um, as people that are living with disabilities that if it's, it's different when I'm talking to my specialty doctor as opposed to when I'm working with a doctor that is in another area. Yeah. You had talked about, a, and not to create a dichotomy of good doctor, bad doctor, but you had talked about the doctor before that said, I can catch in any position. Um, and I remember having read how you went back to that physician. Um, can you tell me some other ways in which that physician um, was helpful and, and listened and, and identified with you? Well, that particular physician, uh, just is a very much at ease with uh, with the flow of what it means to be human. She seemed to me always very open to, well, what do you need? What can I give you? What is worrying you? And she always will talk with me and she'll take that time to say, during this particular meeting, you're here for a checkup. Talk to me about at this point in your life, what are you needing from me? 
what would make you feel more secure? Is there a test I can run for you that you would like me to run? Is there a certain position that would make you more comfortable? Um, is there someone I can call for you to get an appointment for somewhere else if you would like one? Um, a situation, do you want surgery for this? Do you want surgeons or do you want me to call a physical therapist? So I feel with very much uh, that particular doctor is very at ease with what do you need right now to live in the world in your body better and how as your doctor can I help you do that let me give you all the options and you tell me which direction we're going mm. so very and much so the epitome of um, patient-centered shared decision making active listening adaptability is what it sounds like very much so and I and I and I and she's very far away she's uh she's changed areas and I keep traveling to her mm. I'll, I'll, I'll go wherever she is so I think it shows and not that other doctors aren't also wonderful but having that lack of anxiety uh knowing because I have uh different kinds of women's cancers run in my family and all these different kinds of things to know that I always have uh someone who will be in dialogue with me about what the next step can be yeah um, so my last questions have to do with um, the rest of us listening. So thinking about some of the insights, so going back to that statement you made earlier in the podcast um, with the woman in Target about navigating others' questions. And for, for those of us um, who may not have a, a disability or visible or invisible um, condition, what are some things that you have learned over the years that, in terms of what you appreciate that other people have done and um, similar to the target, things that people have done that you wish they hadn't? Well, overall, and it's, and it's difficult for me to answer this question sometimes because I definitely handle questions better than a lot of other people who may also self-identify as disabled. And that's just part of who I am, as I said before, because I'm an educator. But what I would say is what, that if you see a person, what, when your question becomes, what is wrong with that person, instead look and say, is there something I can do to be helpful? And that's not searching for something to do to be helpful. But if someone is having difficulty picking something up, it's okay to say, can I help you? And if they say no, go away. But they might appreciate that help. Um, but at the same, rather than being like, can you explain to me what's wrong with you? Because that's not a conversation to have with someone you've never met before. Once you get to know a person, it's okay to ask those questions. And uh, the same way with being able to help if you're, if you're a parent with a child, if a child is, is staring at a person with a disability and asking, questions instead of saying don't look don't look don't look instead be like yeah that person uses a wheelchair like you use your legs that's different yeah not everybody holds their hands the same way huh Th that person's hands don't move like yours do they just they move differently and to be able to have those conversations so it's not as much as don't look don't have these conversations to teach people that uh, it's okay to have questions it's not always okay to ask them. Mm -hmm. And so those are the, so that was a lot to say there. So in a, the short thing would be, it's okay to ask if someone needs help and if they, whatever they say, believe them. 
And, and second, uh, it's not okay to ask someone you've never met before what is wrong with them, but if you are a parent or a caregiver of children, engaging children about the need to understand difference and accept that bodies are different and move through the world differently is what to have that conversation about rather than don't look. And how do you do that with your son? So thinking of people who are listening who have a child with a perpetual condition, what are some things that you say to him about navigating through the world with a condition and recognizing, <clears throat> excuse me, that as, as we listen, you have also gained a number of assumptions and, right, because you've been through the system so many years and have so many different, you know, scenarios and situations. So how do you teach him to, to be open-minded but also to be prepared at the same time? Like, so what advice do you give him? What I always tell him is you are living with epilepsy and it's up to you to tell people as much as you want to tell them and know that your school, your church, your soccer coach, your surfing instructor, they want to keep you safe and they've talked to mama and daddy, but we don't live with epilepsy, you do. So only you can answer some of their questions and you can decide whether you wanna answer those questions and if you wanna answer your friend's questions or not. You can also say, I don't really wanna talk about it, that's up to you. And he, I think maybe because he's uh, raised by two educators, <laughs> tends to be very comfortable uh, talking with people about his seizures. He even tries to help people understand what it's like. He'll tell his friends, it's like going really fast and being frozen at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like when all the pans fall off the shelf at once and mm -hmm. how your body feels, but it just keeps going instead of just being quick. And so he'll explain it. And so I feel he has this desire to talk with and explain it that I think he has some friends that might not. He might have some friends that seem quieter, uh, that are not quite as open as Tony, that wouldn't want to, but we tell him he's always in control, that he doesn't have to, but there are times where it might be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're near the end of our time, um, which is so sad because there's so much that um, you have shared with us. I, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind telling us some resources. So. Are there websites that you have used in the past and perhaps referencing um, some of your work uh, for those of those of us who are interested in learning more, especially um, about, you know, in, embodiment um, and uh, living with a perpetual condition? Sure. Uh, well, uh, one, uh, one resource, I haven't actually used a lot of websites and that sort of work. I think probably because I'm so immersed in academia, I tend to go tend to go with articles. Um, but I have, uh, but my book has really uh, chronicles my journey uh, living with cerebral palsy and pursuing social justice and equity in my research, in my daily life, and in the classroom. Uh, that's embodied research as applied research, art, and pedagogy. Uh, that is published with Paul Gray McMillan. Um, also, I have uh, I have a another article that talks more about this idea of how we can look at dis is disability disabled bodies as embracing and understanding mortality, 
And I mm. think uh, that is something I talk a little bit about because as that woman says, you're going to die. <laughs> there is this idea of like, in some ways, because people bring that attention, we might be able to embrace the human condition better through listening to the narratives of people with disability. And that uh, particular piece is uh, narratives of hyper embodiment. Um, I also, and that's with uh, Texan Performance Quarterly. And then I have my almost but not quite passing piece that is with departures in critical cultural research. And those are the three that I, I seem to find people tend to gravitate to, um, finding accessible and giving frames to look at of how we can understand disability. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Julianne Scott, for being on our podcast today. It's wonderful to have you on. And for those of us who, um, those of you who are listening, again, to remind you that we are on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. You can like us there. You can also find us on Twitter at Stories Health. And uh, I have a blog at NicoleDeffenbaugh.com slash blog. If you're interested in being on the show or have any comments or questions, you can leave them there. This is Health Stories.